coming up on this episode of the MD and Chef Team Show. I wanted to ask you, what do you what are your thoughts about the copper IUD? Yeah, I have a blog post called The Pros and Cons of the Copper IUD. I talk about it in some detail in peer-to-peer manual. Its main advantage is that it allows natural menstrual cycles. So that's a big plus, considering most of my work is around the value of regular ovulation, the value of natural menstrual cycles and making our own hormones. And the Copper IUD permits that. It has some downsides. Welcome to the show from the The MD MD and Chef Team. Team. I'm Dr. Isabel, medical doctor here at the MD and Chef Team. And who are you? I'm Chef Michael, culinary nutrition expert. I'm the chef part of the team. And what are we going to talk about, babe? Now, I can say that because he's my husband. (laughs) Yes. Well, then we'll be talking about marriage, relationships, parenting, intimacy. We'll talk about mindsets of success, overcoming depression, anxiety. I'll be getting into functional nutrition, recipes and tips from the kitchen. And we're going to both get into how to live a long, healthy, vibrant life. Yes, I love it. Our mission is to help you prevent and reverse disease and give you hope in the process. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We, we like, like to have, have fun, fun too. <laughs> so let's, let's get, get on, on with the show. Hello, everyone. I am Dr. Isabel, and welcome to the MD and Chef Team podcast. And I get to interview Dr. Laura Biden all the way here where I'm living in New Zealand in Christchurch. Welcome, Laura. Thanks for having me, Isabel. I'm excited to talk to you. Yes, and for to talk to the audience, mm-hmm. really excited. I'm going to go ahead and just talk a little bit about you, sure. if you don't mind. Of course, yes. <laughs> Laura Biden is a naturopath doctor and best-selling author of the books Period Man Period Repair Manual and also Hormone Repair Manual. Healthy Hormones Greater Than 40 Years of Age. This is a practical guide for treating period problems with nutrition, supplements, and bioidentical hormones. And I love the way you explain bioidentical hormones as body-identical hormones. With a strong science background, Laura sits on several advisory boards and is the lead author of a 2020 paper published in a peer review Peer Review Medical Journal. She has more than 20 years experience in women's health and currently has consulting rooms in Christchurch, New Zealand, where she treats women with PCOS, PMS, endometriosis, perimenopause, and many other hormone and period-related health problems. Her view is the body is a logical responsive system that knows what to do when given the right support with nutrition and natural treatments. And her mission is to help women achieve healthy, natural menstrual cycles with the use of hormone without without the use. (laughs) Sorry about that. Without the use of hormone birth control pills. I cannot wait till I start asking you all these questions. (laughs) going to be good. So tell me, how do women have natural periods without birth control? Our body wants to have natural periods. As you know, that's the natural state of the female physiology is to ovulate regularly, to have symptomless periods. And 
my experience has taught me that for most women, that's possible. Usually by identifying, correcting any underlying health issues that could be affecting periods, right? So our menstrual cycle is an expression of our general health. It's not a separate category, which is, I think, one of my key messages is to bring the menstrual cycle back into into general health. Because when we do that, then it combats the narrative that, oh, period problems are all just too complicated. You just have to take the pill and, you know, that's a separate thing. They're not separate from our health. No, they're not. No. And how we procreate. Yes. And they're very important too. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you, how would a woman um, have natural menstrual cycles without getting pregnant? Do you talk about that? <laughs> yeah. So my first book, Period Repair Manual, goes into more detail about all strategies for avoiding pregnancy. I talk about it. I do talk about it in the second book as well. Here's the short version. I mean, there are some methods of avoiding pregnancy that do not involve contraceptive drugs, but there are not as many as there should be Mm -hmm. because research has really been dragging its feet on this. I mean, it should not be that complicated to avoid pregnancy. Let me give you an example. Like this, there is a bit of, research that has not been brought to market, but a medication potentially that men could take that interferes with sperm motility, but doesn't shut down their entire hormonal system the way the pill does for women, for example. Like the way we, the medications that are used for women to avoid pregnancy, is just oh. massive overkill. It's like, let's induce chemical menopause, temporary chemical menopause, just to avoid pregnancy. So Obviously, we need big picture. We need a lot more research. We need new methods at the moment. What we have, as you know, is condoms, which I am a fan of. Fertility awareness methods. What is that? Fertility awareness-based methods, which are making a comeback. So that's tracking your cycle with temperatures, either with or without a, a approved algorithm to help you to do that. Because as women were only fertile six days per cycle, we're actually only fertile one day per cycle and then sperm survives five days. So that's six days. And the rest of the cycle, we cannot become pregnant. So this is the idea of- So let's avoid sex during that time. Or <laughs> condoms during that time. Oh so that's, yeah. So that's becoming more and more popular. Other, just quickly, other methods are the copper IUD, which has pros and cons obviously, but does not shut down hormones the way hormonal birth control does. And then there's a couple of other outlying things. There's the diaphragm has made a bit of a comeback and there's withdrawal, which I always mention. I know it gets kind of (laughs) poo-pooed, but honestly, the research for withdrawal is if it's done properly and responsibly, it's actually as effective as some of the barrier methods. So just Mm -hmm. to give a a lay of the land there, you, you know, there are other options for avoiding pregnancy, certainly. Which one do you like the most? Fertility awareness-based methods. So just avoiding during that six-day period? Yeah, but you need, you just as a, a comment, you can't just guesstimate that, right? No, <laughs> no, you cannot. <laughs> you, so that's where the tools come in, either training, understanding your cycle, usually with tracking temperatures through the month, or as I mentioned, there's a few approved algorithms for their, most of them are temperature-based. There's a product called Daisy, which is a little computer that gives you a, a green, yellow, or red light on the device. If your green is you're good to go, you can't become pregnant. Yellow is, oh, I'm not sure. You should take precautions. And red is, 
there's a flashing red is like, you are today is the day to make a baby. To make a baby. And so you, I say to my patients, maybe on the flashing red day, don't even risk a condom or any, you know, just that's the day to avoid. Yes. Intercourse. Yeah. And yeah. is Daisy an app? It's a device, um, computer thermometer. And there's some future apps every year. It seems like there's another app being approved. There's a couple of FDA approved ones for avoiding pregnancy that are fertility awareness based methods. So that's the future. Femtech is stepping up where perhaps the pharmaceutical companies have let us down in terms of methods of avoiding pregnancy. Yes. And the reason I'm asking all this is because yeah. I'm, my, my daughters are 24, 26, and yeah. they'd like to kind of live their life first, which I'm all for. <laughs> now, let me ask you, because they'll be listening and watching this podcast yeah, too, just... and getting your book. I know yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll be promoting that book, the, the first book, the yeah. period sure. repair manual. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, what, do you, what are your thoughts about the copper IUD? Yeah, I have a blog post called The Pros and Cons of the Copper IUD. I talk about it in some detail in Period Repair Manual. Its main advantage is that it allows natural menstrual cycles. So that's a big plus, considering most of my work is around the value of regular ovulation, the value of natural menstrual cycles and making our own hormones. And the Copper IUD permits that. It has some downsides. It can be painful going in. It can increase menstrual flow by about 30%, between 30 to 50% ongoing, it potentially alters the microbiome of both the uterus and the vagina. So, you know, there's some, I'm just pointing those out, not to scare women away from it, because I still think it's possibly the right choice for certainly for some women. And just as sharing, you know, some of my naturopathic doctor colleagues choose the copper IUD as their method. So that tells you something. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 one of the methods we have right now. I think it's far from perfect. It's, this is another example of I think we could do better. I think science could come up with something better than a technology that's been around for you know sixty years or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Good point. Very very good point. Uh, before we move into the the wiser woman, yes, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about acne. What what are your do you have any natural ideas for helping women? You know, in the twenties and thirties with acne. Absolutely. Yay! Let's hear it. <laughs> well, a couple things to say about that. I mean, first is to figure out if you have PCOS or not. As you know, polycystic ovary syndrome, a hormonal condition, can cause acne. So I feel it's quite important to get an accurate diagnosis around that. And then if that's partly what's going on, then implement the treatment strategies I provide in the book for PCOS, the natural treatment strategies. The other situation for acne, and this gets its own special mention. I have a blog post about this called how to treat and prevent post pill acne. So this is if you've been on a pill like Yasmin, or down here, we have Brenda or Diane. So these are pills that have the progestin, a drug called either Jospirone or Cipterone, these are drugs that progestins that um, have a strong anti-androgen effect. So they have an anti-acne effect and often girls are prescribed them when they're quite young. Mm-hmm. And after years on those drugs and then trying to stop them, there is a withdrawal syndrome from those drugs where you stop the drug, the androgens temporarily flare up and can actually, by androgens, I mean male hormones. And 
can actually give sort of a, a temporary PCOS picture or certainly a, a very, quite a severe acne picture. These are young, these mm-hmm. are women who may be trying to stop one of those pills in their early thirties, say, and they, the acne starts about three to six months off the pill There's a little honeymoon period where it's fine. And then the skin comes on and I've seen and heard reports of skin that is unbelievably bad during that process. You know, it's like worse acne than you ever had before as a teenager than you could have imagined was Mm. possible. And it's part of the drug withdrawal process. And I just say that because of course, as women, we always blame ourselves. We're like, oh, I must be broken. This must be, uh, something's really wrong with me that my skin would do this. Or I'm eating the wrong food. I shouldn't have eaten that. It's because of all these things. And so one of my messages around post-pill acne is it's not you. (laughs) It's the drug you were given and trying to withdraw from it, withdraw from it. And then putting in place some supportive measures during that time, knowing they won't be forever. It usually takes about a year to kind of get through that withdrawal time. I'm happy to just list, you know, cookbook lists, like some of the top things for controlling acne. Yes. Um, I will say diet plays a role. So I will say during that time, potentially dairy-free and reducing sugar quite dramatically. And again, not to say that that'll always have to be the case, but during that time, that could be a strategic thing to do. Normal cow's dairy, avoiding that. And then, and it's some research around that, that I talk about in the book. And then my top supplements are zinc, which you have to kind of take at least 30 or 40 milligrams per day, or it's not even going to touch it. And do you like giving it at nighttime? I usually just give it with the biggest meal to avoid that zinc nausea that some people can experience. Okay. All right. Um, although arguably at night, this you know the stomach acids are there's more stomach HCL and it's easier to absorb minerals potentially with the evening meal. And, and then, you go to bed, so you're not going to know if you're nauseous anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I don't <laughs> want my patients. I don't want anyone having nausea from zinc. So it's usually no. if, you take it, if you take it with enough food or split the dose or something, it should be fine. Then um, in the book, I talk about herbal uh, phytonutrient called berberine, which I'm sure you're familiar. It has lots Mm of properties, lots of benefits. It has an antimicrobial effect that's quite good for skin. It dials down insulin or improves insulin sensitivity. So it can be quite good for skin. Then there's a couple other ones. um, The nutrient DIM, which Mm -hmm. is often used for estrogen clearance, actually has a, seems to have quite a, a strong um, anti-antigen effect for, especially for skin. So DIM is one of the ones that people seem to get the best results with. And again, it wouldn't be forever. It's just during that time when your androgens are flaring because you've come off Yasmin or Diane or one of those pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about vitamin D? Yeah, vitamin D and even vitamin A. I mean, this, mm-hmm. I guess skin is a... Um, a reflection of our overall health. So certainly being fully nourished in all sorts of ways is going to be important for skin. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And any, any um, ideas like how would somebody know whether they've got PCOS? Yeah. So that's a whole interview and it's on, it, <laughs> on its own, but I'm happy to touch on it. Okay. If you're my, okay talking about it, I am. I'm actually. I, we I, can I, have another interview. No, another no, we time. can. But I'll just say, I, I, we could do a deep dive on PCOS because I know a lot about this condition. I've, been, I wrote a paper on it. I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. I've treated patients with it. Okay, here's the, in the simplest term, what PCOS is. It is the situation of high androgens or male hormones in a woman when all other causes of that have been ruled out. 
basically. It's a catch-all kind of umbrella diagnosis. So if you if you are showing signs of androgens, whether that's strong jawline acne or hirsutism, you know, body hair, facial hair, and it's those that's not from other conditions such as something called adrenal hyperplasia or you know high prolactin or other things can cause that if it's none of those other things then you're left with this it's this otherwise unexplained high androgens Mm -hmm. and so in that sense one of the things about the diagnosis is it's quite it's heterogeneous right like you can have lots of different women qualify for a pcos diagnosis but they've actually got lots of different things going on with them in some cases it's very much tied to insulin resistance but not always in a lot of cases there's also a a strong problem with not ovulating regularly but not always (laughs) you see what i mean so it's a a diverse Mm -hmm. set of physiological pathways to get to that diagnosis, which is why in my work, I talk, I've broken it into functional types. So sort of the insulin resistant type or the post pill type of PCOS or the inflammatory type. And I just get a lot better clinical results if I look at it through that lens. And the other thing I want to say about PCOS, I have to get this in here. Go PCOS, for it. PCOS cannot be diagnosed or ruled out by a pelvic ultrasound. That is a takeaway. I just want to say that again. You, PCOS cannot be diagnosed by ultrasound. Not to say that a pelvic ultrasound is not a helpful diagnostic technique. It is for lots of things. But for this particular condition, Mm. the appearance, the so-called polycystic appearance of ovaries on ultrasound means almost nothing. Because lots of women have polycystic, which just means they have lots of follicles that month and didn't ovulate that month, didn't make a dominant follicle that month for whatever reason. Lots of women can have that one month and then it's normal the next month. And lots of women have it and don't have the hormonal condition, PCOS. Conversely, you can have someone, especially an older woman, let's say in her 30s or 40s, have PCOS, essentially have high androgen state, have normal looking ovaries on an ultrasound because she's 40 and has fewer follicles right? Like ovarian follicles. Do you know what I'm saying? Like this is the, uh, there's so much confusion around the polycystic ovary finding. That's why people are calling for a name change for the condition. Cause having polycystic in the name is quite problematic because it's actually nothing to do with that. Cause it's almost an oxymoron, oxymoron, yeah. you know, just because you've got some cysts on your ovaries doesn't mean you've got PCOS. They're, and they're not even cysts. Yeah. Like, so as you know, I mean, women can have a, an abnormally large ovarian cyst of all different types. Like there's, you know, that just means a fluid filled structure on the ovary, which could be from all different reasons. Mm-hmm. That's an entirely different thing from just a highish number of eggs or follicles, which is what the polycystic ovary description is describing. I mean, eggs are cysts. So, I mean, by definition, mm-hmm. the ovary has fluid filled structures. So the name is really a problem. And just one final thing I want to say about it, because something I see a lot, and especially in the age group of women under 30, they might be in the situation of having lost their period to undereating or come off the pill and not got their period because they're undereating. Very quite a common scenario, becoming more common. Undergo investigations, polycystic ovaries are seen on ultrasound and so mistakenly told they have PCOS, then read online or get the advice to, oh, you have PCOS, therefore you should go low carb. And then, so eating less, and in their situation, they're now going in 180 degrees the wrong direction from ever getting their period back. 
that's an example of where the polycystic ovary diagnosis really failed. In fact, there was a brand new, there's been two British medical journal articles about this problem of overdiagnosis of PCOS with ultrasound. So we can put those in the show notes if you want. It's um, time for a change. For that. It is time yeah. for a change. I will underline that you yes. cannot diagnose PCOS yeah. with an ultrasound. Exactly. <laughs> and what I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. I know I can see your passion in women's health. Why are yes. you so passionate about women's health? What happened to you? What is your story? You know what? That's a good question. In all honesty, my periods have been pretty normal and uneventful. So I didn't come at it through a personal story. I think I can genuinely say it's from 20 years, 25 years actually now of patients. And I think my, my emotional reaction to just all the crazy stories I heard, like all the things women had been told, mistakenly told, potentially, you know, by their doctors, put on the pill for things that where I'm just sitting there going, this is crazy. Like, you know, your body doesn't need any of that. Your body knows what to do. Mm-hmm. So it, it's just been a com- campaign to help women reclaim their own hormones, their own physiology. Like I, I just feel quite strongly that I predict that in 50 years, maybe less, future generations of women and doctors will look back at this era epoch of contraceptive drugs that will have gone on for 70 or 80 years and not quite be able to believe that that's what we did, that we just Mm. had routinely gave out drugs that shut down the hormonal system Mm. of young women, put young women routinely putting young women into chemical, a temporary chemical menopause and expecting that to be okay. It's you know, it's just this emperor's new clothes situation. When you really start looking at it and seeing the research that's growing, that women benefit from our own hormones, that ovulation is the only way to make those hormones. Like to to have this idea that we can routinely switch off female physiology with drugs would be like saying to men, look, you don't need your testosterone until you're ready to make a baby. So we're just going to shut it down with mm. this drug and give you back a testosterone, you know, a hormone that's kind of like testosterone, but not really. It's kind of more like estrogen and that's going to be fine for you. And yes, it'll cause depression and weight gain, but. Exactly. <laughs> and cause you to have depression and weight gain. Yeah. Like what woman needs to have weight gain and depression? Yeah. It's already hard enough with the hormone up and down, you know, and all round and around. <laughs> so yeah. I know. Oh, I know. I agree with you. <clears throat> <sighs> okay, let's talk about perimenopause. Yes. Can you can you explain what perimenopause is? Yeah. And this is my new passion. So I've, <laughs> for 20 years, I've been very passionate about menstrual cycles. Now I'm very passionate about the end of menstrual cycles. So, and why is that? <laughs> because it's misunderstood. Again, it's seen as a shameful thing. I think women sort of internalize this idea that uh, maybe I've done something wrong by <laughs> getting older. Like it's just this whole crazy narrative and this idea that um, menopause is an accident of living too long, which is not the case. And my book, my new book, Hormone Repair Manual, I go into how actually there's evidence that menopause evolved, that, you know, as humans, even going back, hundreds of thousands of years during our evolution, you know, our lifespan has for a long time been 70 
years old, you know, so for a long time, women have spent 30 years in post-reproductive and potentially that's quite beneficial. I go into that in the book. So what is perimenopause menopause? So obviously yes, menopause, what is perimenopause yeah. menopause? So menopause, I'll start with that. And I use the definition of my colleague, reproductive endocrinologist, Geraldine Pryor, who if you don't know her work, you should have a look. I quote her extensively in the book. She uses the definition, menopause is the life phase that begins one year after our final period. And menopause itself, as I explained in the book, should be quite a cruisy, easy time. I mean, there could be a few things. There could be vaginal dryness, which I talk about in the book, but usually by that one to two years after the final period, it's easy town. Like, you know, you're, you're in the sort of the new, newly calibrated hormonal system. Like, there can be a, some women can have problems, but the, for most women, if they're going to be symptoms, it's before that, it's during perimenopause, which is the two to 12 years before that, including the, you know, waiting to see if that's your last period, that final kind mm-hmm. of year and usually more. And that I, in the book, I call second puberty. That is, can be a time of symptoms for completely understandable reasons. It's a, a time of massive recalibration of every system, including the immune system and including the brain. So you're causing second puberty is really perimenopause. Yeah, perimenopause is second puberty, yes. And that can be up to 10 years, right? Yes. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, but it can be, as obviously I talk about in the book, you know, it, it can be associated with symptoms, but those symptoms can be addressed. So my goalpost would be that most women can transition that relatively easily keeping in mind that because it's a time of recalibration it's also what I call in the book a critical window of health so it's if there was ever a time to in our adult lives you know to look after health it's it's then maybe the postpartum would be the other example but just this perimenopause because the physiology is in such a dynamic changing state mm-hmm. what the research shows is if you experience an insult to your health during that time let's say like a major you know stressful time or strong insulin resistance developing or you know something kind of is not going well during that time that can potentially amplify into longer term problems the way it wouldn't amplify if the same insult happened during your more stable reproductive years, if that makes Why sense. is that? Why is that? It's because of this concept. It's like a tipping point or a pivot point in health because everything. Or is, is it the load? Is it that concept, the load you've reached, you're overflowing, your load has reached the level, the tip? Maybe the analogy I give, because yeah. it's a recalibration, the analogy in the book, one of the analogies I give is it's like when your computer software is updating. And you know how when it's updating, it's like, do not unplug it. Do not, you know, (laughs) press, do not touch basically the computer while it's undergoing it's because it needs to do all these changes. And then you come out the other side, you've got newly installed software and you're good to go. Okay. Whereas if you switch off your computer unexpectedly, you know, when it's not recalibrating, it's fine. It will, you know, shut down and turn on again. So, but this is sort of an analogy, I think. And obviously it's not always within our control. There's going to be stress. There's going to be things that happen during that time. But I make the case that if you can 
during second puberty, look, take extra steps to look after yourself, to move your body, to look after your gut microbiome, to eat well, to quit alcohol. I would put that in there or drastically reduce it. Yes. That's the time to do it because the dividends will pay off, right? Like if you can look after yourself in your forties, then by the time you get to your sixties, you're good, right? Like you're, you're quite stable and can go back to some of your um, busy ways and maybe, you know, reintroduce some wine and things like that. Yeah. Alcohol is so detrimental to women. Yes. Especially during perimenopause, but in general, yes. It's unbelievable how, but uh, you know, we, you and I live in New Zealand. The culture is it's wine o'clock. I know. It's normal to be drinking two bottles of wine a week. When I ask women how many glasses are in a bottle of wine, they'll say three. I'm like, no, (laughs) try seven. (laughs) But I, I, hey, I've lived here for 20 years. I know the culture. I got caught up in the culture. Alcohol messes up my sleep and I love to sleep. So I have been like, off to the side as much as possible. Yeah. And it's one of those things where I would just offer to anyone listening, if they are struggling during perimenopause with sleep problems or night sweats or hot flushes in combination with say magnesium and some of the other supplements I provide and eating well and moving, moving your body, just dramatic, like drastically cutting alcohol, maybe getting rid of it for a while might be all you need to do. Like I've had patients who are like, wow, oh, my night sweats are gone. I'm like, I'm fine now. And all they had to do, and it's not just the night sweats you might have the night after you drank. Like that's yeah. one thing, but it's cumulative. So just generally getting it out of your life for, means that you'll be building up a better quality sleep. And a more do you drink sleep. alcohol at all? Well, this is, yeah, I can, I'm happy to share this. So I always loved having, you know, three or four beers in the week beer is my my drink of choice and so when I was in the thickest part of perimenopause like a couple years ago because I'm almost through it now I would go through this is my I like I would love to have a beer with dinner kind of thinking about it but you know I could do that and then wake up all sweaty at three in the morning (laughs) or I could not have that beer and I could sleep through the night so for me it was like yeah it's actually just not worth it And, and also likewise you know just avoiding it generally meant my sleep solidified. So that's been my personal experience, but that's also been my experience with a lot of patients say the same thing. So when you go out to drink, when you go out to have a meal with your family, what do you order? Just so everybody knows. Oh, I'm a big sparkling water. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And my husband bought bought me a soda stream a few years ago because I was just going through so much sparkling water. So that's. I I love sparkling water too. Yeah, Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I, yeah. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. Now, was there anything else about perimenopause and menopause that you wanted to touch base on? Oh, no, I think, well, we've just kind of scratched the surface, but just that it being the recalibration and the symptoms being temporary and it being this critical window for health. I think a lot of that is quite important and also being normal, you know, being a, a nothing to feel ashamed about. I have um, nothing to be afraid of. No. I did an informal survey on my social media accounts where I asked women how they feel about the prospect. I shouldn't laugh, but like how they feel about the prospect of perimenopause and menopause. And most of them are like afraid, you know, just, which is no surprise given <coughs> how it's yeah, portrayed and it doesn't well, have to be like that. 
Yeah. And on a personal experience, I just kind of want to share a little bit about, um, I can understand why women are afraid of perimenopause and menopause. I, you know, when I started doctor on a mission, I gave up private practice um, about eight years ago and started doctor on a mission. And I was going through perimenopause, but I thought it was sweet ass, you know, as they say here, I'm sweet. I got this all under control. And then a year into building Doctor on a Mission, I just felt the weight of the world on me. I wasn't sleeping. I went through an event where I only slept for 17 days. I only slept two hours every day. And I was getting more and more anxious and concerned and, you know, because I still had to function as a doctor and as a wife, as a mother. And I, I tried to take my life twice in three days. And now that I'm way over on the other side and I've realized the 10 pillars that needed to get healed with in my anxiety and my depression, I realized that hormones really plays a big role. And I want women to know that depression is not normal for perimenopause and menopause. And, and you can get help. And there's just a big, there's a lot to be done. It's not just, you know, my, my, I was, I was shuttled off to a psychiatrist who kept me alive. You know, I was grateful for that placed on an antidepressant and I'll never forget him saying to me, Isabel, just stay on this for the rest of your life. Cause you need it. And I was like, I just knew in the pit of my stomach that is wrong, wrong, wrong. And now that mess has become my message to help women overcome anxiety and depression and and bioidentical hormones played a huge role. I mean, I'm on bioidentical hormones. I plan to live to be 120 years healthy and strong and helping people, you know, and bioidentical hormones really are very, very important. So I guess my message to your your team and to my team is you can get help. There's good help out there. You don't have to be on an antidepressant. You are not deficient in an antidepressant, you're deficient in a big, there's a lot of pillars that need to be repaired. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. It's the research does back that up, that it's a window of time when the risk for anxiety and depression increases. I think it triples for women. I didn't know that. I had no idea about that. And then the risk actually goes then after, you know, with menopause and into women's 60, late 50s and 60s, the risk actually goes right back down to normal and possibly even better than normal yeah, yeah. for that individual. So it's, <laughs> yeah, it's real. And you're so right about this mistaken message that, oh, okay, now you need this antidepressant. And oh, that's how you're always going to be. You're always going to need this. So that's one of my messages is it's a, you know, it's a transition time. Just be very careful to not be given a label either depression or fibromyalgia or some of the other um, diagnoses that can be given during that time Mm -hmm. to not take that on as a permanent thing but rather potentially a manifestation of this recalibration process and also to speak to yes the bioidentical hormones why don't we talk about that now I mean they can that's both estradiol and progesterone we can talk about this they can be very helpful and there's actually research to suggest and certainly clinical experience that they're a far better option than an antidepressant. I mean, they're, they're, they're helping, they're supporting the brain in a way that it actually needs. 
should we define kind of what bioidentical body identical is and just direct women how to get that because go for it go for it yeah because I want to start by differentiating what we're talking about right now estrogen and progesterone from the contraceptive drugs in the pill just to circle back to that because because there's a lot of confusion in the medical community conventional doctors had no clue not until I was trained in bioidentical hormones that did I realize oh my gosh they're different. Why like, didn't we get taught this stuff right, in medical so, school? So the, often the drugs in the pill are referred to as estrogen and progesterone, but then, well, they're not. And this, okay, so estrogen is a generic term that can refer to estradiol as our main estrogen, or it can refer to ethanol estradiol. That's the drug in the pill, or it can refer to different things. Progesterone is not a generic term. Progesterone is only describes the progesterone in our own body or that you can take in the form of a progesterone that's been manufactured, but it's identical to the progesterone in our own body, like the same molecule as a, I'm just, this is a really important point. The progestins in the pill, which would be circling back. I was talking about drosperinone or cipterone. These are a few of the progestin drugs that get used and are called progesterone, but they're not. Those have strikingly different effects in the body and particularly in the brain. Like strikingly different effects. I, I can't emphasize that and enough. And this so, also includes medroxy progesterone. Exactly. The, the so Depo Provera. Exactly. That's not progesterone either. And but we it, say it as doctors, oh, we're gonna put you on some progesterone. Yeah. It's not progesterone, it's so, chemical yeah. progesterone. There's a couple of things that really illustrate the difference for progesterone versus progestin. One is that most progestins, progestins, some more than others, but most of them carry a small breast cancer risk, like an increased risk of breast cancer due to that drug. That's true for most progestins. That's what the research is showing now, including medroxyprogesterone. Progesterone, from the research we have so far, true progesterone does not seem to have that risk. And in fact, Professor Pryor, who helped me with this book, I referred to her earlier, Geraldine Pryor, she has keeps presenting several lines of evidence that progesterone may actually reduce the risk of breast cancer. So that's a, that's a, progestins increase the risk, progesterone reduces the risk. So that's one example of how entirely different they are. And that's actually one of the reasons why progesterone, real body identical, bioidentical progesterone is now the preferred gold standard, you know, treatment for menopause. Like, like even conventionally that's happened the last six or seven years, which is Great. Oh, yeah. I take progesterone at nighttime. It's wonderful. <laughs> and you, we've got to let everybody know that progesterone is what your body makes when you're pregnant. It's you know, true. so it's that loving, calming. Yes. And I don't have, did, did you have children? No, I didn't have biological. No, I don't have children. No. Well, when you breastfeed a child, you know, it's just that progesterone's coming out and the oxytocin. And then you as the mother and the baby just want to fall asleep. And it's that's what the progesterone does is it just calms you down. Even my male patients use a little bit of progesterone. (laughs) The brain, the brain loves progesterone. You're right. So progesterone converts to a metabolizes naturally to a neurosteroid called allopregnolone, which interacts with the GABA receptors. So it's like the hormonal Valium. That's what it's usually mm, called. Good whereas, point. whereas no progestin, no progestin, whether it's drosperinone or medroxyprogesterone, none of those convert to allopregnolone. So that's another big difference. The first difference is in the breast, 
how progestin versus progesterone behave in the second is in the brain. Mm. And so, yeah, progesterone, most women love it. If you take it at bedtime, I take it as well for sleep. So in New Zealand, well, there's different ways you can get it. So you can get it compounded. We can talk about that. But the, the main product in New Zealand is called Utrogestin. That's in the UK. It's the same. I don't know where your listeners are from. In, in the US and Australia and Canada, it would be Prometrium is the brand. Those are all body identical progesterone, i.e. aka bioidentical. Down here in Australia and New Zealand, the preferred term seems to be body identical. I think it's... I like that. Yeah. Body identical. That's really good. Where do where do they get the nutrigest? The nutrigest. So it's a prescription item. Oh, okay. Here, so so it's specialist authority. No, no, I don't think. No, I think any well, no any doctor can prescribe. So actually, at the moment, the standard hormone therapy prescription that's given in Australia and New Zealand, it's the same in the U.S. and Canada, and the U.K. is an a body identical estradiol patch usually or the estrogen mm-hmm. is given through the skin mm-hmm. combined with a body identical progesterone capsule also referred to as oral micronized progesterone mm-hmm. brand name utrogestin or prometrium that's the standard now i was i remember the first time like about eight or nine years ago when let me just think of the date no in, in australia when i was practicing in sydney australia that became the standard in around 2016 the end of 2016 mm-hmm. and i remember the first time a patient came in and showed me what she'd been prescribed and i almost cried i'm like finally after literally decades <laughs> of like natural practitioners saying it would be so much better if you give real hormones you know body identical hormones body identical progesterone that would be so much safer that would be so much safer that was knocked like literally for decades that was knocked back as pseudoscience and then finally in the late 20 teens it just quietly became mainstream and it's that's been a, a big step forward for women just to point out not to say that it that's the conventional prescription now is body identical but women need to actually check what they're taking because they might've been given something else. It's not, it's not, it's not normal in New Zealand for a GP to give Nutrigestin. Nutrigestin. Uh, actually, I have a lot of my patients, that's what they're being offered anyway. Or because they're I, with you, because they're yeah. with you and you've taught them, which is what we're doing now. Yes, is teaching. Exactly. Yes. So what you do is you say, oh, great with, you know, I'd like to try some hormone therapy. And then they write the prescription. They say, oh, is that just checking, but is that, um, a patch plus utrogestin because I've heard that's better. <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah. That's really important is teach yeah. your patient to be the CEO of their health yeah. so that they can teach the doctor because our patients do teach us. Yeah. And just a tip when you're talking, if you're talking to your doctor about this, I, this seems small, but I recommend to not use the word natural when you're talking about these hormones. They are natural hormones technically, but I find that most doctors that just adds confusion to the conversation. You don't have to bring that into it. You could just say, I want that particular brand name mm-hmm. because it's safer mm-hmm. than a progestin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Beautiful point. <laughs> yeah. Let me see. I give you a hundred percent on that one. <laughs> Let me see. I'll give you a big heart on that one. <laughs> Those are funny. Oh, I love your props. And yeah, it's great. Thank you. Yeah. And just so everybody knows, this is just a piece of material back here. It's not, it's not a backdrop. I just saw the material at the store the other day and I was like, I love it. (laughs) Okay. So 
Uh, let me see. Where were we? We were about, we're weeping all over we, the place. We were talking about the mood, the mood. We were talking about the mood risk, the surreal yes. mood risk with perimenopause. We we're talking about how certainly hormone therapy, body identical hormone therapy, can be helpful for that. In the book, in my book, I talk about these two kind of pathways for that. You can go the progesterone progesterone only route, which is a little bit unconventional. Um, or you can do progesterone plus an estrogen patch, which sounds like maybe that's what you're doing. Certainly a patch can be, adding the estrogen can be quite a mood lifter and quite helpful. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And it can also be good for, as you know, um, helping bone density, maintaining healthy bones. And right. thinking, thinking. And yeah, the reason, yeah. oh my gosh. So yeah. have you ever heard of Dr. Dale Bredesen? He wrote this book called yes. The End of Alzheimer's. Yes. Yes. Familiar. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's trained a bunch of doctors around the world and I'm one of them. And my husband's one of the nutritional chefs. And <clears throat> so what we found is there's like, there's six ways that people can get Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. you know, like if you think of your head as the house, the roof, and if there's, if there's holes in the roof and it rains, then you're going to get flooded out. Well, your brain is the same way. If you've got deficiencies or de- yeah, deficiencies, yeah. then you're going to go ahead and be at higher risk for Alzheimer's and cognitive decline. And the first one is inflammation. The second is prediabetes. The second, the third is hormones. Yeah. And how, how important estrogen is for women f- for their cognition. It's amazing. Let's talk about that. Cause I, I, yeah, I go into that in quite a bit of detail in the book. So the estrogen, actually, it's funny you mentioned them side by side. You mentioned prediabetes or insulin resistance and then estrogen next, just now. They're related, right? So the way they're related and the way this all relates to dementia risk is that with the drop in estrogen, we all of us get a shift to that pushes us to insulin resistance to some degree because mm-hmm. Estradiol, our main estrogen, normally has quite a strong insulin sensitizing effect throughout the whole body and including in the brain. So what the research has found, and I quote a couple of researchers, including um, this is my own menopausal brain, the woman who wrote a book called XX, oh, Lisa Moscotti, there I remembered it. She's a researcher. She wrote a book called XX Brain. She observed. Oh yes, I've seen that. Yeah, book. with her, her, her colleague Roberta Brinton. These are the two neuroscientists I talk, I quote in the book. So what they've observed is with menopause, when estradiol drops, not to zero, but drops substantially, it that can correlate or result in an up to twenty five percent reduction in brain activity or brain energy. They can see that on these scans that they use. So what's happening is. With the drop in estradiol, the, the brain cells, the mitochondria, to be precise, lose, in part, lose their ability to turn glucose into energy. And they have to switch to turning ketones into energy. So there has to be this degree of metabolic flexibility mm-hmm. that has to happen as we transition to a, this low estrogen state. Now, I, in my book, I touch on a whole evolutionary mismatch aspect of that. I, you know, evolution or menopause has been a lot around for as long as we've been human. I think in previous food environments, you know, it's sort of more in the pre-industrial age time, that shift to reduce insulin sensitivity in the brain wouldn't have been as 
problematic because our food environment was such that we weren't going to be prone to insulin resistance anyway. But when you have this, this change compounded with our food environment, compounded with the problems with the gut microbiome and all the environmental toxins that are impairing metabolic flexibility, then the brain doesn't make that critical shift to burning more, more ketones, if that makes sense. And that's where an estradiol supplement can come in. Mm-hmm. Estradiol can support that system. Other ways to also not either either instead of or in addition to to support that system is to not have insulin resistance, right? Like to do everything you need to do to have good insulin sensitivity through the perimenopause transition and onwards into the coming decades. And that can all help to reduce the risk of dementia. Yes, absolutely. Lisa Moscone, the researcher I just like quoted, she actually says, quote, I think I put in the book, dementia begins in menopause. Not in every woman, right? And not only if there's other well, like susceptibility to it, but she's like the change is the energetic crisis in the brain that can lead eventually to menopause actually starts in our late 40s and then takes 15 years to you know, 20 years to fully manifest, to fully develop. So this goes back to what I was talking about, perimenopause and the, you know, that early couple of years after the final period being a critical window for health, right? This is an example of that. Your brain is recalibrating. It needs to switch to being able to burn ketones more efficiently mm-hmm. to not get dementia, basically. Like, yeah. Amen. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, on our website, uh, on under the tab of Ending Alzheimer's, we've got an Ending Alzheimer's Masterclass. It's a five-part series. Mm-hmm. Just because we want people to start this in their 40s, to start yeah. taking good care of so that they don't get Alzheimer's because you don't have to have Alzheimer's. You don't have to have dementia. It's it, Even if you've got the DNA, even if you've got the APOE44 gene, yeah, of course. You don't yeah. have to have it. Dr. Bredesen has taught us how to prevent that from being expressed. So I love that you're talking about taking good care of yourself in the 40s because it, yeah. it it really will be advantageous to so many people. For sure. But, you know, in our 40s, we're all kind of like just getting started with the family and our profession. And it's a busy time. It's such a busy time. It's incredible. It's true. So I'm glad you bring awareness to that. Were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was going to just touch back on alcohol again. I was just going to. Oh, totally. Go for it. Just the culture of Mm, this narrative, right? That during this busy time, you know, wine is the answer. And 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 it's, it's just so harmful to women. It's such a stereotype of yeah, it's just, it's just doing a lot of harm. And I just, I just really want to put the message out there again, that and I have a big section about alcohol in the book and talk about, it's time to debunk this idea that, you know, alcohol is good for you in some way. It's not, it's not good for you. I mean, like, I guess I would acknowledge that in this, you know, certain situations maybe not that bad to have a couple of drinks in a week or something like that, but big picture during this critical window, it's yeah. It's not yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that it increases your risk of anxiety and depression anyway. So and why even? Breast and breast cancer. Yes. Here's a stat for you. Um, <laughs> if I can get this right. Like, so of course we've been talking about hormone therapy, body mm. identical menopausal hormone therapy, which we both think can be quite helpful. Although not to say every woman needs it, but if they want to, and you know that it's safe for them, they could try it. 
Um, of course, there's been a fear around, okay, does that increase the risk of breast cancer? Well, the short answer is probably not if you use it with real progesterone, eutrogestin that we've been talking about or prometrium. But even then, the estrogen component of it has a slight, slight potentially um, breast cancer risk associated with it, but not as much as alcohol, right? So moderate drinking, even like four or five drinks in a week, increases the risk of breast cancer more than estrogen therapy does, right? So it's just this to kind of put it in perspective that... I don't think that message is out, especially in New Zealand. I don't know about Australia because I don't live there, but definitely not in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah, the, the risk between alcohol and breast cancer is not tentative, right? Like it's a known risk. The research is really solid and it's a linear risk, which means there's always a risk, but it goes up the more you drink, the more the risk goes up, obviously. But even a few drinks in a week carries a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. soda yeah. water. Yeah. <laughs> we're not this is not going to be a popular podcast. We're we're um, <laughs> no. we're the bearer of bad news. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but hey, don't we want to live life without disease? I I do. How about you? Yeah. Definitely. I've yeah. taken care of too many people that have got chronic disease and are sick and it's an yeah. ugly life and it's all yeah. it's most of it is preventable. For sure. Thank you, Laura. You've yes. been wonderful. Now I wanted to do a call out okay. for your two books. Yes. Do you have another book in the making? Oh, not yet. No, that's just, no. Yeah. <laughs> I've written one book. I know how painful that was, but I'm sure it wasn't painful for you. Oh, it's you, a lot of work. It's oh. like, I always say to people, imagine how much work you think it's going to be and multiply that by 10. Cause it's just like, it's yeah. like having homework every single day <laughs> for months after months after yeah. months. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so the first book is Period Repair Manual. Yeah. And the second book is Hormone Repair Manual, Healthy yeah. Hormones After 40. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. And your website is Laura by Bryden. That's L-A-R-A-B-R-I-D-E-N dot yeah. com. And we'll be having links and contacts okay. and everything on all this. Okay. Well, it was so nice to meet you. Maybe I'll meet you in person. Like we were saying, we're in the same country. We um I'd love to. I'd love to go out and have a meal with you and some soda water. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll we'll, we'll post to, yeah. And we'll do a picture. Sure. And put it on social media. That's good. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Hello, Chef Michael here. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you subscribed to the podcast and left us a review.